Coming up next is Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with Jerry Pives. What gets you out of bed in the morning? Who has influenced you the most? How has your background contributed to who you are today? And how do you deal with stress and trauma? Immersing myself in nature is probably my first go-to. Sometimes with just a kind word, just a, hey, it's okay. Join registered psychotherapist and author, Jerry Pives, as he invites New Zealanders from all walks of life into the psychotherapist chair. Check out reality with others, but also check out reality with yourself. Listen in as they open up about their lives, their family's history, and what drives them. I had already kind of been through a massive trauma, so I already felt kind of strong and equipped at the beginning to deal with something that was out of my control. Prepare to be entranced as Kiwis open up about their heritage, their lives, and the understanding of their place in the universe. Frankly, I know very few people who are not struggling to some degree or other in these highly traumatic times that we're living through. Tune in to Real People with Jerry Pives, Tuesdays at 1 p.m., right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Well, what a treat I've got in for you this Tuesday afternoon. Welcome, this is Jerry Pives on Real People. And just in case you've missed it, we started off on our first episode with Leanne, Holy St. Leanne of the Coffee Cart. A tremendous listen and exploration of so much personal history and also the role of coffee in the history of the planet. <laughs> and then episode number two, we had Craig Smith, the wonky donkey man, covering off all sorts of fascinating subjects. And then in the third episode, we had Sue Hoskin, the food forest and the death cafe lady. And she went through some amazing stuff around our spiritual approach to life and some of the sickness of materialism and anthroposophy, which I can still barely pronounce. And then last week, we had René de Monchy, uh, who I would probably call the romantic psychiatrist. And he talked about looking at the systems of the body in very special ways. Well, who have I got lined up for you today? The suspense must be killing you. <laughs> well, today we've got Sandy Murphy, who I'm calling the wellness lady. And in this episode of Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair, we're going to be looking at some amazing issues that Sandy's life has brought into focus. Firstly, you know, there's the issue of our own integrity and standing up for what we believe. And then there are some amazing exploration of her family origins in Australia uh, with her grandfather being a World War II pilot and her Irish ancestors. And then there's some really beautiful exploration of the spiritual dimensions to yoga and the creation of a community here down in the South Island in Queenstown of a spiritual dimension and a community of well-being. Nadi Wellness is her centre. And we also cover some of the challenges and stresses and traumas of breaking up with significant relationships. And we get some beautiful top tips from Sandy in how we can all maintain and keep our balance. 
And in my reflections, if you stay tuned, you're going to hear about the story of the still small voice, the story of Elijah, how he found the still small voice deep in a cave. Today, sitting in the psychotherapist chair is Sandy Murphy from Nuddy Wellness, Queenstown. Sandy, welcome into the psychotherapist chair. Thank you so much, Jerry. Not sure whether I should be excited or nervous about that. Hot seat, hot seat. (laughs) (laughs) Remember that anything you don't want to talk about, you just wave at me and we'll move on. So, you know, if any subject feels a bit too intense for you, you can always wave me away. There's no problem with that. And for any listeners, if anything you hear distresses you in any way, then there's a PDF available. If you go to realitycheck.radio forward slash G-E-R-R-Y, then you'll find there a little PDF that gives you some ideas on how to soothe yourself and keep yourself uh, regulated if you need any help with that. So that's available for anyone listening. So back to you, Sandy. Nothing to worry about. Nothing you need to talk about that you don't want to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. Sounds perfect. I'm pretty open, really. (laughs) So just for the listeners, I first came across you, Sandy, in the the terrible times when governments were telling us what to do with our bodies, what to do with our businesses, what to do with our everything, basically. It was such an attack on human rights and civil liberties, uh, unprecedented. And I heard about you because when all the studios and centres and everything were either conforming and saying, only if you're vaccinated can you come into our church, can you come into our studio, can you come into our training course? I was banned from psychotherapy institutes. I couldn't turn up to their courses. I couldn't walk into restaurants. Many people listening will recognize this period. I heard of this one soul woman in Queenstown and soul in in both senses, I think, um, that you had made you'd found a way not to discriminate between people who either chose to get vaccinated or chose not to get vaccinated. And I said to myself, I got to meet this woman. Here's someone I want to know. And Sandy, tell us a little bit about that, because, you know, that's a remarkable thing you did. Thank you. It was certainly an extremely challenging time, wasn't it? And um, everything you've shared there about being barred from different restaurants and activities, you know, I couldn't go swimming with my children, except in the lake. Um, and just the the tremendous pressure that was put upon me as a business owner to effectively be asked to discriminate against one half or third of our whole business community um, and the other and also staff um, not to mention myself and my own personal choices around my body and what it is that I believed in so I was certainly put into a position where I had to call on my um, my inner resilience and my confidence um, to stand up and be authentic about that because it certainly does not resonate with me to be otherwise um, especially holding a space such as a wellness center where it's all about ensuring that people feel included um, you know inclusivity is a huge part of what it is that we value um, diversity of different, people's choices, different walks of life, different ethnicities. Of course, we're welcoming everybody in. And to suddenly be put in a position where we had to uh, say no 
to some of our community felt like a horror to me. Um, so I, I very quickly went about um, working out how on earth I was going to handle it as a business owner. And I studied fairly ferociously the various rules and things that were put in place around the mandates and what was expected and what category you fitted into. And it was all very confusing and sometimes incredibly contradictory. Um, but with the help of my managers and my team, um, we certainly did the research into, well, what is it that we what category do we fall under? And what we decided to do was we noticed that if you were um, if you were a bowling alley or if you had a place that where you could rent the space, then you could still welcome people in that they could privately book the space. So instead of having, because yoga isn't a gym, so we, we didn't know what category we fitted into, to be perfectly honest. Um, we were like, well, we're not a gym, and we do have yoga mats out on the floor, but we do all sorts of other things too, like seminars and talks and educational sessions and um, and obviously all our wellness department with the massage and holistic therapies as well. So and to cut a long story short, um, what we did is we changed a little bit of how we operated. So we just, we just found um, a way around the logistics um, so that we were above board and we did get uh, some clients who were coming to us that were perhaps on the other side of the fence complaining to the authorities and we did have some investigations happen um, but they could find nothing wrong with the way that we were operating based on how we had uh, rearranged according to the rules. But we, we did, you know, stay above board with everything we did and we were not shy about making that very clear. I had signs on the doors saying that we will not discriminate. I involved myself in a local documentary film called Unity for Community and spoke out. Um, and I think I was one of the first business owners in Queenstown to go to the mountain scene, sit with um, with the uh, mountain scene and to discuss how objective I was to such stringent mandates against our human rights, putting a stand there around the mandates. That's a local publication, Mountain Scenes, right? Yes. Yeah, it is. Local publication, many, many years, um, sharing the community stories. Um, and so this was a community story that I wanted to have a voice around. And I specifically requested to the journalist who interviewed me um, to see the content of, of what it, it was that I was going to be reported to be saying. I was very conscious not to be misrepresented or to say something, you know, words put in my mouth. Um, and yeah, Dutifully, he was very good about allowing me to speak my voice. And I got tremendous amounts of emails from um, other surrounding businesses, um, you know, vineyards, and I won't go into names, but people saying, oh, my goodness, thank you so much for taking a stand. It's so hard where we're sitting. Um, you know, I had a couple of councillors and other members of the community come to me as well um, saying, you know, what are you doing? That is not what we should be doing. And to be fair, we had, you know, a good conscious above board conversation to and fro, and I just did my best to keep putting the other side across. Um, hard as it was to convince anyone that that was, you know, not what should be happening in my view. Yeah. Good on well, you, girl. I Fantastic. I couldn't, I couldn't have lived with myself to do such a thing. I mean, half my friends were in the same category as me. What am I going to tell people that, you know, have been frequenting uh, Nadi Wellness for 13 years? We're coming up to the 13th birthday uh, in December. Yeah, that suddenly their home hub for well-being, relaxation, growth, healing, and awakening is now no longer. You know, it's just not. We're responsible for the mental well-being of our community, and they absolutely come to 
to Nadi Wellness as an anchor of support for that. So it just went completely against the grain, to be honest. Yeah. Well, I got to say that if anyone visits Queenstown and doesn't book in to Nadi Wellness <laughs> in Queenstown, you want your head seen to because it's just an amazing, <laughs> beautiful place. There you are. I'm oh. going to give you a plug right there. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, it is a beautiful space. We've recently moved locations and, you know, the parking is tremendously better than it was in the previous location and it's easy access, ground level. And a beautiful place with lots of lovely community-spirited people working there too to welcome you in. So, Sandy, give us a thumbnail sketch of your life at the moment. What does your life consist of? What does your day consist of? Who are you with? Uh, Give all the listeners just an idea of what your life is like at the moment. Sure. Um, So it's pretty full. And I like to use the word a full life rather than a busy life because to me, busy denotes stress and hectic (laughs) vibes so as a wellness um leader I suppose you you could call me because I I wear a bunch of different hats sometimes all at the same time um uh, I like to think of my life as quite full it's full but it's balanced um I am the owner of Nadi Wellness have been for 13 years as I mentioned earlier um that means that I oversee a management team a massage therapy team uh, and a yoga teacher team. And in those various departments, um, you know, obviously beautiful different talents that they all have, but um, I'm helping to oversee what the daily tasks and the actions are around that. But predominantly my role is teacher, so yoga teacher and yoga educator. And I say educator because my expertise at this point, I suppose, is leading 200-hour yoga teacher trainings and the Yoga Alliance accredited. That is so that um, people who wish to investigate the yoga tradition more and understand more not only about who they are but want to be in a position to be of service in teaching, um, that's what I'm training them up to be. And I run two 200-hour yoga teacher trainings per year. They're a pretty intensive container. Um, The promise 100% is that there will be some transformation in the personal journey, um, as that's what yoga by its nature provides the container for. Um, So I can promise that. And that's not coming from me, but through me, uh, the transmissions of the teachings. And so that's where I spend quite some of my time um, holding the space for um, teachers to become teachers, (laughs) people to become teachers. Um, My day-to-day also involves caring for my beautiful children. I have a son, Jasper, who is 15 and just getting into downhill mountain biking, which is rather scary, but also fantastic at the same time. Um, My daughter, Sienna, is 12 and she's an avid performer, not unlike myself. I can see a little bit of my... uh, (laughs) <laughs> flavor moving through her field. Um, she's doing acting and loves to dance and, um, you know, t- pre-teens, but going on 15 as well. Um, she's fantastic. And I spend some lovely time with my children um, going on beach holidays and doing what we do in the day-to-day, I suppose. is Yeah, that's my main gig, really, work in that respect, which feels like my love um, and my family and friends, my beautiful partner. Yeah. Life is good. It's fairly balanced. And probably the one way in which I managed to sort of keep the ball rolling, so to say, is to keep myself fit and to walk the talk. So I love to run in the mornings down to the river. Um, I do a couple of pump classes per week and I like to get to my yoga practice. So just keeping my, um, my health well and 
my social balance right. Yeah, that's really where I'm at, I suppose, in a nutshell. So you mentioned a partner. Can you tell me the story of your children's father? Yeah, to what degree? He's still here. <laughs> He's a part of their life. So um, my children's father lives in Queenstown um, and we share the care. So um, we're in a, an amicable relationship at this point after 11 years down the track. Uh, it wasn't the case. It was very challenging in the earlier first five years, um, but we've made our way and I think we can both congratulate ourselves in having done a very good job together in making sure our children have been protected by whatever it is that we don't resonate with each other on and do the best thing by them it seems to be our orientation and I do think we've done a fantastic job of that. I, um, I think it's really hard yak sometimes being in a separated situation for sure there's there's challenges that come up but I think we navigate them a, little, a lot better these days and the kids are good and we're all sort of able to roll with changes and swings and roundabouts and if someone wants a long weekend and someone wants the kids the whole weekend we, we sort of navigate the schedule and we manage it quite well I think at this point. Oh, what a what a lovely story of how it can be even mm. when the relationship breaks down how it's possible to do that and it's possible to keep the children as it were in the forefront of all the other tumultuous emotions that go on in any in any relationship breakdown so congratulations yeah. on that thank you it was mm. it was not easy in the early days for either of us and i'm sure not for the kids in the middle but they were very young um, and yeah, we in the early days really wanted to make sure we did the best thing by them. So we um, we saw a child psychologist. We decided we would see them through the custody schedule as um, often as possible. So there weren't great big gaps of time between one parent and the other. And interestingly enough, although um, we've had feedback that, oh, it's quite a complicated schedule you have going on there. Um, there's a lot of changeovers. That's what works for all of us. And it has maintained. Um, so there's been a consistency over the 12 or 11 or 12 years um, of that. And I think that helps us all to keep stability around consistency. Yeah. Probably many listeners who are in a similar situation. I also mm. was in that situation with, with my children. And yeah. I'm fascinated when you talk about your custody schedule. Um, <laughs> would you be willing to share a little bit about that? Because that does sound rather interesting. Oh, I can. Um so, I mean, it is, it's complex in that there's lots of changeovers within the week. Um, so we have a meeting place that's neutral. There's never a changeover at either one of our houses, um, though that can happen these days if it happens to suit what's going on. For example, if it's Halloween and it ends up that we're at someone's house out in Arthur's Point, you know, um, then okay, we might adapt the rules, so to say. But the, the general um, flow has been we've got a neutral changeover point and the kids are with me four nights of every week and with Greg three nights of every week. And then what happens is it's not necessarily in blocks. So if I just ran a seven-day period, kids are with me Sunday, Monday night, with Greg Tuesday, Wednesday night, with me Thursday, and then we alternate every Friday, Saturday night. So every weekend we have the kids for one night through till 5 p.m. the next day and the other parent has them the other day. So we get the weekend time, and it sounds complex, but it works for us. And if anyone wants to have the kids for the whole weekend, go away, then we just talk about it, and we don't stress too much about dotting I's and crossing T's on time. It's like, whatever. What 
I've done this weekend, you'll do another weekend and I'll be flexible. So it sort of um, allows us both to conduct the work that we both do really well, which is not necessarily nine to five stuff. Um, and it's allowed us to just sort of operate well together in our work as well as it works for the kids. Mm. I'm really impressed by the meeting space, the the neutral meeting space you describe. How did that come about? I am interested. <laughs> um, it's Well, sometimes you get traffic in Queenstown and you can get delayed um, and all manner of other things can happen that can delay being exactly on time. So what we decided is there's a wonderful place in Queenstown called Raywood Fresh. It used to be called the Med Market and I sort of default to the old school title, which is probably not the way to do it, but Med Market or Raywood Fresh um, is a cafe slash supermarket but it's quite market-like so it's a wee bit more boutique and there's heaps of car parks so you can arrive and go shopping while someone's still in the traffic you can have a coffee cup of tea so there's always something to do or flow with and that's what's helped us on changeovers because instead of generating any kind of stress if someone's not on time or someone has to wait all these sort of things that irk um, each other in situations such as you know having to constantly do that everyone seems to be able to be happy um and it works flows so that's that's kind of our neutral changeover point get the shopping done have a cup of tea um now jasper can meet us there off off the skyline downhill you know you can just bike around that's the changeover point it's nice and central Oh, that's so, so impressive. And, you know, the reality of that, the the wisdom of that methodology. And I think also, um, thinking back to my own experience, it pretty much broke my heart to drop my children mm. off at our old home together, the old family home. I can't tell you how upset I got and how tight I felt in my heart, in my body, yes. Uh, every single week when I would drop them off at my ex's place because I was heartbroken with the loss of the relationship and I was every memory. I don't think she had the same problem dropping them off at mine, but then (laughs) maybe she was better at hiding it. I don't know. But for me, it was, I didn't want to look in the eyes. I didn't, in the early years of our breakdown, you know, it was very, very hard. And I just wish we'd had your smarts to think of a of a mutual place. What a clever idea. And what a what a way to enable the children to see both parents kind of in a more resilient way doing mm. doing the handover because neither is stressed. And also the the nature of a home. That's like you've broken up and yet here the person is coming to your home. So it's like old and new in maximum conflict. I don't know that's just because I'm a pussy, but that's how it was for me. (laughs) No, and I can resonate with that because that's how it was in the early days for us when we didn't have a neutral changeover point. Sienna was eight months old and still breastfeeding. So we had a conundrum there around you know, how to, with, at first she didn't sleep over at Greg's because she was still breastfeeding. Um, and so I would sometimes, this is the kind of extent we went to, I'd drop her off to Greg's at, say, 6 o'clock at night, give her a feed. She'd spend three hours there, and then I'd come back, give her a feed at Greg's, and I'm in his personal space, tough at those times, and then bring her home just so she could be there and have any kind of normality of being at his place until such time as she was able to um, 
you know, move into that arrangement. And I guess it was more difficult because we kept crossing over into personal space in the early days, necessarily with littler ones. Um, and it's just so much easier now um, as we've moved through what, what didn't work and change it up. But that's, that's how we've done it. And it has worked really well. So I'm talking to Sandy Murphy from Nadi Wellness in Queenstown, and you're listening to Real People on Reality Check Radio in the psychotherapist chair. So Sandy, let's start by you telling me how on earth you ended up in Queenstown. How did your family come to be there? What are the roots that brought Sandy Murphy to Queenstown in, in your early years? Tell us what you know about your family history on this one. Well, to go immediately into why Queenstown, um, my parents met in Queenstown. My parents met at Icarts, which is an iconic pub right down by the waterfront. Um, that's where they actually met. My mum was on a skiing holiday with a girlfriend of hers from Australia. So she's from Melbourne, my mum, um, Scary Boar in Phillip Island, and they came over on a skiing trip. And she spotted my dad walking down the mall earlier in the evening, and then I believe how the story goes, correct me if I'm wrong, mum, it, it, they met in the pub. And that's how they came together. And then it was a case of her toing and froing Australia for a while until they, they were able to kind of like commit in. And then mum moved to New Zealand. So Queenstown was a draw card for both of my parents because of the skiing. And my dad was already an avid skier. Um, so skiing was kind of like their, their go-to thing that they shared in their relationship well before children came along to such an extent that when we did come along, um, both my grandparents on my mother's side and my parents shared the purchase of a little A-frame on Earnslaw Terrace that looked out over the lake, and that was our holiday home. And I have very fond memories of consistently coming to Queenstown and, and doing the skiing holiday thing, even though we lived at that time in Christchurch. Um, so Queenstown was sort of in my blood from childhood, and skiing was always the associated activity. Um, but I have, I have very good memories of being in that A-frame. It was wonderful. Yeah. So could we go as far as to say that you were conceived in Queenstown, perhaps? <laughs> well, who knows where I was actually conceived? I wonder <laughs> if I, because mum and dad moved to Omaru for a little while, um, but only for about a year. And I was born in Omaru. So Omaru is my hometown, uh, my birth town. Um, so good question. Shall have to ask mum that one. <laughs> Yeah, so prior to that, um, prior to that, um, my heritage goes, you know, into into other places. But Queenstown, yeah, I think the lifestyle of Queenstown. We lived in Christchurch and Wellington for many years um, before Mum and Dad decided to permanently reside in Queenstown. He was a corporate man, my dad, in mobile oil, and so his work didn't um, sort of lean towards being located outside of the city at first but then he made a lifestyle choice and became a proprietor of two mobile service stations so that he could ski effectively <laughs> and moved the family so we ended up here mm. so how old were you when you moved from Christchurch to Queenstown I was 14 so I had my first year of high school at Villa Maria College in Christchurch, um, which is a Catholic girls-only school. Uh, and then we moved that following year to Coed, Wakatapu High. 
Mm. That was a tough change at that age, I have to say. I was definitely not an easy one um, with your friends and things, but yeah, we coped. Yeah, I was just thinking that's the big transition to make at a very important time of your life, really. Mm. Yeah, it was a big change, but Queenstown had had its draw cards as well, you know. It felt a little bit more familiar because I'd already been coming to Queenstown. It wasn't sort of yes. like a new place. Um, it was just about getting used to new people in a new environment with the school, I suppose, which, yeah, came with its challenges in a small town. And did you have any brothers or sisters, Sandy? Yes, I'm the eldest of four. I'm uh, 22 months older than my youngest sister, Kylie, and then I've got two younger brothers, uh, Dan and Ash. Sweet. Your mother comes from Australia. Do you know anything about her line, her family line? What sort of history you know about from that side of your family line? Yes, I was very involved with my mum's parents, my grandparents. They are were Australian as well, obviously, but their heritage goes back into the English heritage and right the way back in our family tree to the Earl of Rivers, which I thought was quite significant. Ooh, there's an Earl in our family background. Sounds interesting. Yeah, my brother Ash, my youngest brother, has been putting together our family tree. So even in very recent times, we're still discovering interesting tidbits about where we come from. Um We'd sort of done a bit of exploring on my dad's side, which I can go to if you want me to, yeah. Well, before we go to your dad's side, let's think about your mum. And the Earl of Rivers, who was he? Yeah. Tell me what you what you know well, about him. And I'll be very honest and say I haven't dived into it too much just yet, and I ought to just because I think it would be very interesting to do so. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I'm I, think... I don't have the lowdown and the goss on that one. <laughs> no, well, that's interesting. I've come across the Earl of Rivers in history, but I'm not going to make a big mistake here and and get that bit wrong. But it's certainly a well-known name in the history book. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So there could be some very interesting unveiling going on there. I'll certainly be talking to my brother a little bit more about it because he's been mapping it and very, very interesting what he's come up with so far, I think, on that. Yes. But we need to sit with so, it. Yeah. So did your mother's parents, your gra- did your grandparents come from England or were they, was it their parents or their ancestors? Their ancestors, so they were very, you know, full-blooded Aussies um, and they had siblings in Australia as well and their parents, I believe, were Australian also, so it must have been the great-grandparents. So that would have been your great-great-grandparents who came My over from England. My great-great-grandparents, yeah. yeah. It's a bit closer on my dad's side because it was his grandparents um, on his side, so I think a little bit more established in Australia on mum's side. I know you want to jump to your dad, but I'm very interested. Oh, no, no. In, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm going to slow you down a bit here. The So on your mum's side, I'm just thinking if your mum's great-grandparents came over, that would have been a while back, wouldn't it? I'm wondering what kind of yeah. era that would have been. So we're probably talking about potentially turn of the century i think is that right the 18 1800s so. very very yeah not quite the first wave no I, wanted, I, I was hoping they might be convicts but i don't think they would have been <laughs> but yeah the real poms right well, i used to think that the poms were the english but actually they're the australians right the prisoners of mother england would be That's you, it. you would actually be australian mm. 
I thought that was fascinating when I worked that out. <laughs> yeah, and then why did they call the English the pommy bastards? So I didn't get that exactly. one either. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, well, maybe a listener's gonna gonna write in and explain all of this to my, yeah, my sure. ignorance. That'd be wonderful. So pretty much from your mother's side, a strong, fairly well established Australian tradition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you would you say that's influenced you in any way? Would you say that that cultural background of you know what basically is probably incredibly brave uh, pioneering people getting into these wooden leaky boats and half of whom pretty much sunk on the way around the world and you know that there's something about that and knowing the reason why they came it always fascinates me. You probably don't know that at the moment, but you know no, any. But- Anyone who jumps in a creaky old boat for as long as it takes to sail over, you know, anything from six to 12 weeks or however long the journey takes, um, they've got to be something special about them, don't you think? Yeah, I felt into that exact point as well and just thought, gosh, you know, Kiwis and Australians have got a certain type of resilience in their fabric. And it goes deep, I feel, to that very thing that you're talking about. What does it take to uproot? from society and relocate, um, there's got to be, I mean, when we look back into history, obviously there's, there'll be lots of motivators towards why that happened. I, I don't personally know why my particular family did, but I imagine that it was the searching out or the seeking for a better life or um, the promise of a, a better lifestyle, a new beginning, a starting over. And I feel, yeah, to make such a journey, there's a certain kind of will or sense of purpose that goes with that. And that feels to me like it's in the Kiwi culture, it's in the Australian culture for sure. And the way in which that has impacted me is perhaps just to realise that that's part of being a Kiwi, um, that when I look back, we didn't emerge out of New Zealand. We came here in the family line. We came here. And so to understand that is to feel into that. Um But I guess the thing that has influenced me more than anything is then really probably what my grandparents endured and what they have experienced as Australians with the World War II. Um, My grandfather was a pilot in the Second World War and in their latter years both became professional painter artists. So I feel like the influence that I feel from them is coming more through what might have been going on to be Australian in the Second World War and during the Depression and the impacts in society that they would have had to navigate. Um, there's got to be a bit of a throwdown from there, I feel. Yeah. I'm already drawing a few connections, really. And mm. so I want to float a couple and see how they sit with you. Yeah, sure. One of which is your great creativity. Um, and I know we haven't done your dad's side yet, but your mm-hmm. great creativity Uh, has already struck me and if I know that you spent a lot of time in your early years doing singing and studying film and acting um, so there's a strong creative strand there but I also know that you stood up for your principles around this recent madness and I often well I think on one of the earlier programs I asked the listeners have they seen all the uh, all the graves in the cemeteries all the earth moving because our ancestors who fought in wars for freedom and democracy must be turning in their bloody graves 
at the, yeah. the way in which Kiwis have sold their freedoms down the river right now. And I think we're about to see the World Health Organization say that it can control what goes on in our country. And if they declare a pandemic, they can tell us what underwear to wear. As far as yes. I can work out, pretty much everything they want yes. to control, they believe they can. And I think, you know, your grandfather being a World War II pilot, I wonder, I wonder, first of all, you know, what that means to put yourself you know, it wasn't uh, the life expectancy of a World War pilot was not great. No. And the kind of humanitarian that he was, because I came to know my grandfather quite personally. He was very involved in my life. He taught me lots of things. Very blessed to have had that connection with both my grandparents on mum's side. Um, you know, holidays to Phillip Island for Christmas, beach time, watching them both paint, hearing their stories. My grandfather was a very, uh, he grew up in a very fiercely, complex religious situation being moved around all sorts of different religions but he had a spirituality to him that sort of uh, transcended all of the dogma that might have come with that and he would impart that to me and you know I remember things like I mean he was a performer himself he could recite incredible poetry and know it all off the cuff on the chairlift while we were skiing for example I don't know if you know of that poem called this is the house that Jack built. He knew every word and it goes for pages. Um, so he was quite a creative himself. And I think that that was passed on um, to me. And so as a humanitarian and an artist and a creative, I think being at war and being asked to do the most horrendous atrocities that I'm sure he must have been asked to do, although he was very largely on the rescue mission side of the fence, um, it must have been incredibly uh, incongruent to him. You know, the cognitive dissonance around being a peacemaker and being of that that space and then being put in a situation where you must be bound by duty to do such things. It's just I can understand why he struggled in his latter years a little with his mental health and the post-traumatic stress that went along with that. Um, I do know that um, he struggled immensely with that at times lost his hearing in one ear from being by the drone of the propeller in the Sunderlands that he would fly. Um, he's written logs uh, into a book called Black Cats. Um, so I've, I've, I've read his writing. He was very fastidious about keeping his notes, incredibly detailed about making sure there was a record. Um, so he really left his stamp in terms of what he was involved with with his missions and I really respect that and I feel I feel blessed to have had a grandfather who was not only so incredibly spirited and compassionate and creative but also who endured that horrendous time of what it must have been like to be at war Japanese yeah I'm feeling quite moved by what you're sharing Sophie. Mm. Mm. That conflict within that those poor men had to go through. Oh, it must be unspeakable conflict. It's no surprise, is it, that the PTSD diagnosis came from soldiers first. I mean, now we recognise trauma as something that has many implications to many yeah. areas of life. Mm. But it is no surprise that 
we first woke up psychologically to the importance of trauma through the warriors, through the men that yes. stood up and risked their lives. They didn't know they were going to make it through. They didn't know. Uh, interestingly, I I had one grandfather uh, during the war who was ostracized and um, basically bullied and attacked quite often for being a pacifist. He was placed mm. in a farm to work, mm. uh, but mm. he received a lot of um, shaming for that. Yes. Um, yes. And I had I had another grandfather who was plying the waves between England and America in the merchant navy, where they wouldn't stop if your boat got sunk. So he was a merchant wow. navy man. So all his mates and all his friends, and the, the carnage was incredible. The number of merchant oh. navy boats that got sank. You know, and that was all after my father was born. Both my parents mm. had been born before the start of the war. So it wasn't like my existence was threatened. But yes, right. it was this generation. And many Kiwis who are listening probably know also that their parents, the, the ones that fought in the Second World War, their parents often fought in the First World War. So you mm. had this massive double whammy of trauma coming into society mm. all because of the horror of one group of people thinking they have some kind of right to dominate another, you know, as if yeah. where did where did humans ever get this demonic idea that any one person should have control over another person? Oh. What an absurd and dark and disgusting idea. Yeah, it it certainly doesn't work. <laughs> um, I mean, it beyond doesn't work. It doesn't serve our humanity, does it? Um, not at all. And also just on that note of what someone like my grandfather and your grandfathers would have endured, what about, you know, the wives, the women, the children back home and just the impact of that too, never knowing quite where it was all at and and the potential pressures that they were put under. I know that my grandmother was put under a lot of pressure to be, you know, her her husband's wife and, and what she might need needed to have provided in terms of, um, you know, entertainment and the pressure around that, you know, with an air squadron leader such as he was, he got an OBE, so he was quite well respected and and I think there was a lot of social pressure on her at the time, not even to mention the impacts that he might have been enduring that she was having to support. So, so many, so many factors that come into it um, psychologically. Do you know where his field of operations were flying the Sunderlands? Do you know whereabouts he was flying them? My mother would have the detail on it, and if I'd read his logs just recently, I might have been able to give you a clearer picture of that. But it was um, there were various areas. Uh, well, I think it was. I think it was mostly in Australia. I think it was mostly in Australia. Uh, he was RAAF, so he had that that station point there um look i'd have to double check to be honest to give you detail like that yeah it's just that you mentioned japan and i wondered if he had flown in the some of the pacific operations and stuff like that i would say he definitely would have yes. he, he definitely yes. would have some of the stories were were profound and some of the rescue missions he accomplished were absolutely amazing you know and to think that he probably had to do other missions as well at least he was at least rescuing is somehow on the positive end of the spectrum. You can feel like you're making a difference and saving lives rather than destroying them. I remember one person, in fact, it's a great uncle of mine, who told me the story of 
his father, who flew in the Dresden bombing raids. He was a Canadian. He came over from Canada as a branch of my family that went to Canada. And it destroyed him for the whole of his life. He was the rear rear end Charlie, the back gunner of the Lancasters. And those they were the first ones that the German planes would take out, because if they could take out the back gun, they could, yeah. at their leisure, then strafe the, the bombers without any worry about getting hit themselves. So not only... Wow. Was he the first target of any attack? But secondly, he got to see the firestorm that had been created as he flew past. You know, he would have seen that. And it destroyed him. It destroyed his life. It it wasn't just that he was part of a war machine that destroyed actual lives. You know, it's that the people who survived carry the scars of war for generations. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, in my work, I... My first love was history, by the way. You might have got that. And um, <laughs> my first, my, my, I am. <laughs> say again, say again. I'm very good at it, better than I am for sure. History, well done. Very, very astute. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm embarrassed at how little I know. I think I kind of tricked my way into university, actually. But, but I, you know, I think my first qualification was a degree in history. And then I went on to train in psychotherapy. And I've always felt that understanding our roots is at the root of so much that makes us tick, what gets us out of bed in the morning, and also what we carry, because on some level we carry, we can carry the traumas that have been unresolved. Uh, they pass down. We don't quite know how, but we certainly know that they do. And very often I'm working with clients, you know, I'm sorry, this is me waffling on, but very often I'm working with clients and I have to say to them, you know, this is not your trauma. Yeah. The trans—it's called transgenerational trauma, isn't it? And there's uh, my understanding of it is that it transmits through the epigenetics, the emotional imprints or patterns in the psyche. Is that how it works, Jerry? Well, there's several schools of thought, and the genetics is one. But I've mm. the studying I've done suggests that our genetics are influenced by how we behave and think now. So we switch on and off certain genes. So I'm not convinced of the overriding power of genetics because I think it comes from a medical profession that would have mm. us be little tiny atoms and molecules on an RNA, you know, and they want yeah. to do demonic things. But what we do know- <laughs> I was, I, I, I'm not sure if it came across clearly or not, but I, I said epigenetics. And I my understanding is that that's less- genetics, less genes, and more around behavioral patterning that gets inherited through the cellular matrix somehow. I mean, jeepers, I'm absolutely not a pro in that department, but that's my understanding. And I, I mean, beyond that, I've certainly experienced it in working with people in a psychological way. And I've had my own experiences where, um, where I do ask myself that question, this feels like it's not coming from me and my life. This is something in my my fabric and my ancestry and and it's worth tapping into even even just to sense you know if there's anything any gifts there as far as learning goes yes i mean this is a fascinating topic and it may be that the cellular matrix is responsible i, I see it much more pragmatically and simply which is that certain patterns and of behavior and habits get passed on from father and mother to child so whatever has happened gets passed down in a certain type of behavior and that certainly young children are so like sponges they 
pick up all the things we don't want to pick up, right? So that, we, that makes we, sense. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Good and bad, negative and positive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm talking with Sandy Murphy on Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair, and we're actually looking at the roots just down her mother's side of her family, of her grandfather and her grandmother, uh, coping with the Depression in Australia and the war, and and we're looking also at the even more ancient roots of families that have travelled across the world at enormous risk to themselves. And we're just looking at how those roots are part of, if you like, the matrix of what makes us who we are. And we've just been discussing how the traumas of past generations can be carried by us. And Sandy, I loved what you said about that, that we have to kind of acknowledge them or we have to connect with them in some way. And I, I would say that sometimes we also have to we have to heal them, that there is still some healing to be happening. And I'm sure that's the work you're doing, especially at the physical level with movement and breath mm. and all of that stuff. And the, the the role of kind of almost releasing the pain of past generations. If people knew that we all have within us the power to forgive, to release, and to acknowledge, and to, if you like, send, I know it sounds a bit woo-woo, but it's made a total difference to people's lives that I've worked with, to send healing to previous generations. It's a vital part. Indeed, yeah. there's a whole form of therapy based on that called family constellations. Yep. Yes, um, I'm aware of that, yeah. Yeah, Powerful, and, right. and yeah, remarkable work. But most psychotherapists find themselves bumping into the ghosts of the past, you know, the, the skeletons in the cupboard that need to be just <laughs> named. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm certain from all my work that this is probably one of the most important transformational moments when people acknowledge that we are more than just a bit confused. We're carrying traumas from sometimes several hundred years back. It's remarkable. Tell us about your dad's family. This is so exciting and so interesting. Well, I know just a little tidbit more about my dad's side. And I had um, the great fortune of going back to where my family actually came from, specifically in Ireland when I was age 15. Um, it was quite important to my dad um, to take us there as a family. Uh, Mum and dad saved up for I don't know how many years to take their four children on a Europe trip in a camper van and I feel incredibly grateful for the exploration, the learnings. It was like a university degree uh, for me at age 15 to travel around Europe in a camper van, literally in such a way as my dad would have it. Where do you want to go today, girls? You know, not uh, obviously within reason going from one side of Europe to the other without going in between, but it was like that. And it included going to Ireland, which is where I'm from on dad's side. I'm a Murphy. I'm a Murphy. So, um, <laughs> so it goes way back to Kilkenny, Kilkenny. And to visit, um, we actually went to our family's actual home, which was in a dilapidated state made of stone. And I remember standing in the fireplace, the skeleton of what once was. That was pretty special. And I totally acknowledge that that's not what everyone gets a chance to be able to do. And that was significant for me, very, very memorable. And to be in and amongst the community of Kilkenny 
you know, the oldies in the pub and the dancing and the culture of the Irish um, that I was able to, well, it imprinted on my on my psyche at a very young age. Yeah. Wow. What a gift. Yeah. Big gift. Thank you, Mum and Dad, for that one. What was it like for you, if you can, if you'd be willing to share just for a moment, to take a moment and to just recount what it was like for you to stand in that fireplace, Sandy? Mm. What what was it like to be there in that building? You know, the first word that comes to my mind when I feel into it is is liberation. It was like a kind of a freedom is what I felt, to be honest, and almost an amazement at how it all flows because on a timeline, we're going back many years that, you know, my family would have been living in there and sitting by the fire I was standing in with grass between my toes. It was literally an archaeological remain. Um, However, to envision, I remember standing there and trying to imagine what it would have been like to actually live inside that space. Um, it It was liberating on some level to understand how life unfolds through the space-time continuum. You know, here I am standing here in this space-time moment and it wouldn't be so far of a reach to go back to the space-time moment that my great-great-great-grandmother, sister, cousin might have been sitting having what thoughts. (laughs) It was mind-blowing in a way. What do you think they would have been doing? What's your fantasy? (laughs) Probably working really hard. I feel like they would have been working really hard and then playing really hard. It seemed to me that the culture in Ireland was have a good bloody laugh. You know, don't take things too seriously. Keep, you know, a bit of, bit of stick, bit of uh, loving ripping <laughs> and down to the pub for a beer. <laughs> yeah, humour. I feel like humour is the message I got about what was important from being in Ireland. Mm. You sounded so <laughs> Irish when you said being. <laughs> oh, I don't know. My accents are not that great. A bit rusty, a bit rusty. Uh, so when did your family come over from Ireland? When did they leave Ireland? Well, it was my father's grandparents, whom were Irish, and his grandmother actually came out with her two sisters so there were three women who came out from Ireland and my dad's grandfather my great-grandfather came separately so my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother met in New Zealand but both were Irish and the three girls never went back and they traveled over together the three sisters so the actual year, I'm not 100% on. I'll have to talk to Ash and get the deets from the family tree. <laughs> but that's my knowledge on on that bit, um, which is kind of cool, that they met in New Zealand and both were Irish. I like that. They went all that way <laughs> to meet each other instead of on the homeland. So I'm wondering why they left. Good question. That's what I'd like to know. Mm. I'd love to know this. Yeah. If only there was like someone had written a journal 
Maybe Ash is going to discover it. You know, I who hope knows, so. Who knows what might turn up? Yeah. Look, he's doing the mahi on it and bless him for doing it because it serves us all to understand our past in that way. And I'll be certainly very interested to see what he comes up with and add to it if I can, when I've got a spare second without too many hats on. <laughs> well, the Māori say if you don't know where you came from, you don't know who you are. And mm. in the Western culture, we've kind of lost that. I think we've lost it largely through trauma. I think people wanted to stop talking about their stories in the world wars. I do have one more question I want to ask you. Are you up for another question? Sure. Far away. Happy. <laughs> I'm just wondering if all the work that you've done in understanding yourself and in the practice of your yoga, I wonder if there's any, how that's helped you through a trauma. Have, are there any traumas that you can point to in your life that you can say, yeah, I think that really helped. Or or if not, what was it that did help you? Because I like to ask everyone I interview here, mm. what got you through a really tough time? Really one of the toughest times. I've been through some tough times. There's many. Um, but a significant one was the separation uh, of my relationship with the father of my children. It's a pretty significant turning point when you have a divorce. Uh, we weren't married per se, but it was still of the same degree with everything that's involved in that lawyers and property and money and children and custody schedules and the emotional toll uh, that goes with it and the why it's even happening. So if I didn't, you know, it was a stressful time. I, I had a ruptured Achilles, I was on crutches, I was practically an invalid, and I had to make a lot of decisions around you know, taking over the business and um, how I was going to step forward in life. No surprise that the leg separated at the time of the separation of the relationship. <laughs> uh, but if it wasn't for the tools and the technologies of the yoga that I have worked through over the years, I honestly don't know where I'd be. It, to have the tools to cope with stress and with the trauma that happens through that stress sometimes is is so worth the effort of a consistent practice of, you know, tapping into this information that's just there. It's been there for thousands and thousands of years um, and are very practical things such as learning how to breathe well or changing your breath patterns so that your chemistry and your nervous system and your hormone system is balanced. Um, you know, I used breath, I used meditation, I stretched, um, and I suppose it's also a mindset that I came to understand that through the portal of deep challenge are great teachers and great gifts. And to have that perspective that though it's difficult, while we're right in the thick of something incredibly potent, such as a relationship breakdown or a loss, um, that there is a doorway to something else unveiling there for us in our, in our journey that that maybe actually it's opening the door to something better and um, for our own personal evolution, for the well-being of everyone concerned, um, to have that mindset in the midst of um, the darkness, to see the light at the end of the tunnel, I think it is key. And the tools and the technologies of yoga have helped me walk the path through, if you like, and have the tools and resources um, along the way. Yes, and, you know, I just want to 
reflect a little bit on actually what was a tiny throwaway comment by you with a laugh, which was how amazing that you understood that your Achilles tendon separated your leg at the time that you were separating from your, your life partner and the father of your children. What a remarkable insight that is. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, it was an Achilles rupture is an overstretch injury. So it took a certain degree of angles of velocity to actually have the gun go off, so to say. I mean, it's it sounds like a gun when it breaks and a complete dismantlement of your ability to step forward in life. And that was what was happening. And I went immediately into shock. I was in a public area where many people who knew me saw me in shock with a white face and completely, you know, hung up on a on an ambulance chair. Um, it was a stopper. It was a stop in your tracks and reassess and how to now. And it did not pass me by at all that that was significantly related. And I think my perception now is that everything that happens on a more subtle level, whether it be mental, emotional, spiritual, eventually manifests in the body. And so if we can come into that place through inner seeing, through inner practice, through whatever vehicle helps us to get there, to understand how to change it at the core, at the cause, then we're not just putting band-aids on symptoms. Um, and I think, yeah, it was a gift being on crutches for, you know, months and months and months and having an ACC nanny to carry my daughter across the room. You know, I ended up having a buddy through the separation process with me every day to help with the children. Um, it was brilliant. There was so many, so many wins out of something that was just really quite horrendous. <laughs> what, a, what a smart way to get support. <laughs> I know. I thought so. I mean, I didn't intend it, but far out. Did it, did it give me a more joyous transition to have company? And, I mean, let's not forget the fact that I'm incredibly blessed to be surrounded by the most um, incredibly supportive family here in Queenstown. I am truly blessed to have that type of support right on hand. And not for a second do I ever take that for granted. Um, I'm well supported and I know some people are not in that place. And in that place, they must reach out for the communities that hold that tribal family support. You know, that's what Nadi Wellness represents, a place where you can come and feel at home and in community. Um, but yeah, I'm very lucky, really, that I'm surrounded by such an amazing supportive community at times when I've gone through the hard yards. Yeah. Support is key. Well, if there's one theme that keeps recurring over and over in all of these sessions that I hold in the psychotherapist chair, it's the significance of community that we are we are communal beings. And mm. so we must reach out to our communities. And also we are deeply internal beings. We have complex internal structures, so we need to spend time working on our internal selves. And I think that's why I ended up doing what I'm doing. It sounds like that's why you ended up doing what you do. Um, Sandy Murphy, it has been an absolute privilege and a total pleasure to talk with you in the psychotherapist chair. Um, if you're listening to this, do stay tuned because after a brief break, you're going to be hearing me reflect 
on some of the psychological tools that we can all use to help ourselves through difficult or traumatic times. So do stay tuned. And later on after that, you're going to hear Sandy's amazing selection of music with meaning. So the show is not over. But for now, Sandy, I'm going to say a big, big thank you for sharing your life, your past, your family, and your beautiful approach to how you live your life. Thank you, Sandy Murphy. Oh, Jerry, thank you very much. And thank you to all the listeners for bearing with and listening too. It's truly a privilege for me too to have this opportunity. Thank you so much. You're listening to Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with me, Jerry Pives, on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Listen to all three segments of this show here. The first segment is the session where we explore their past, their present, uh, what gets them up in the morning, what's influenced them, what makes them tick. In the second segment, you hear me giving 20 to 30 minutes of some useful little tips and stories that can help us navigate through the tough times in our lives. And in the third segment, well, you get music with meaning. That's a treat for having come all the way through this far with me. This is where my guest shares the tracks of music that describe the arc of their lives and the pieces of music that take them right back to those special times in their lives. So listen, to get the full musical quality of this show, you need to listen either on Tuesday at 1 o'clock or at 10 p.m. and Saturday at 11 a.m. Any other time, if you get the replays, then you're going to get a version without the music because of copyright laws. So if you want to hear the music, which is a big part of this show, then listen in at Tuesday 1 p.m. and 10 p.m. and Saturdays at 11 a.m. And if you know anyone in your local community who's an inspiration to you or contributes and makes the life of your community better, a hidden gem, an unsung hero, I'm not interested in the rich and famous. I want to have real people. I want to have people from your community, local people, unknown people. Let's learn from the best people in Kiwi life, in the New Zealand that we wish to have. Let's find the very best people, the people that make a difference, and let's find out what makes them tick and let us all become better people as a result. Send their email and your reason for nominating them to inbox at realitycheck.radio. And don't forget to send me an email telling me how you're getting on with the show. What are you liking? What are you enjoying? And send that also to inbox at realitycheck.radio. Let's get on with the show. So what can we reflect on after that wonderful session with Sandy? Many important themes were touched upon in that session. The theme of generational traumas that are carried by us, even though we don't know it. The pain of relationship breakdowns. The importance of standing up for your own truth and the significant role that community can play in our lives. Above all, this whole series is to reflect upon how do we get through what Sandy called the hard yards. Well, I love the bit where Sandy said, you need to make an appointment with yourself. I wonder if you remember that. You need to make an appointment with yourself. And when Sandy says, make an appointment with yourself or with ourselves, I immediately think of that beautiful phrase of, listening to the still, small voice within us. 
And of course, that phrase, the still small voice, comes from one of my favorite stories in the Bible of Elijah, one of the great heroes of the Bible. And Elijah had to listen to the still small voice of God. And the still small voice of God came from inside a cave. And the story is really interesting. If you want to follow it up, it's in 1 Kings chapter 19. But the Bible says, you know, the wind rent the mountains. I mean, just imagine that wind that destroys the mountain and breaks into pieces the rocks. I mean, what a what an image of noisy, powerful stuff happening, you know? <laughs> and then it just to make sure we're getting the point of this story, you know, it goes on to the earthquake. Then there's a ruddy earthquake, and the earthquake shakes everything. But you know, it's beautiful. It says, but the Lord was not in the wind. <laughs> The Lord was not in the earthquake. And then there's this ruddy fire burning everything up. And it says, but the Lord, the voice, you know, was not in the fire. But after the wind and the mountains and the earthquakes and the fire, after all that kind of noise, the voice of truth would be found in a still, small voice. And it was in that still, small voice that God spoke to Elijah. So. When we make an appointment with ourselves, I think sometimes we must listen after the noise, after the pain, after the struggle, and we go to that very still, small place. And if there's anywhere where I think God speaks to us, I do believe it's in that in that deep place, and it's within us. And <laughs> perhaps the most disturbing thing about the story is that when, <laughs> when Elijah did get to speak to God, the first thing God said is, Ah, oh, Elijah, what doest thou here? <laughs> what doest thou here? It's like that's the one reason why most of us can't bear to be still, because we hit the greatest question of our lives, the existential question, what doest thou here? And it's so much easier to get busy and to be distracted and to be stimulated. I get it. I get it. I share that with you. <laughs> There's something terrifying about reaching into the stillness within and hearing what is being said to us. The reason I'm sharing this is because I'm thinking I am going to offer you something that I think might be practically quite useful. At least it has been for my life and the lives of many of my students. Um, you see, I'm convinced that our lives are, in fact, a journey, and that understanding that journey, truly understanding it, is the greatest challenge we face. And in this episode, Sandy talked of a subject very, very dear to my own heart. She talked about the role of the body and how the body manifests issues that we're not facing. And I think sometimes we we turn away from what our body is trying to say to us because we are our body as well as our spirit, as well as our energy, as well as our emotion, as well as our mind. We are the physical structure of this body. 
And last week I proposed just doing something really simple, like standing on grass in bare feet and feeling the pressure changes between your feet as your hips very, very slowly, really slowly go from one side to the other, from the left to the right and the right to the left, and feeling the transfer of the weight to really ground ourselves and breathe and connect with ourselves. That was a standing meditation if you like one that you can do anywhere you're outside and you can kick off your shoes but today for the exercise that i'm going to propose that you try out for yourselves and see if it works for you i need to first talk about our attitude to our bodies and our inner experience our experiences of ourselves you see even the most peaceful loving people who wish for the world to be full of peace <laughs> can be at the most horrific war with themselves and their own bodies. It's as if in fighting oppression, injustice, and you know the totalitarianism that seems to be emerging all around the world, in fighting all of that, we're in a real danger of carrying that fight towards ourselves, which means we may fight the outer fascists, you know, the, the individuals, the governments that oppress us, but we forget to deal with the inner fascist, the fascist within that says, you know, demands of our body perfection, demands of our body that it should always, always perform to, to keep laying on demand after demand, like our body is a slave, like we're an Egyptian pharaoh, flogging the slaves, you know, till they die. We, we take our bodies to the limit. There is a part of us, the inner fascist, that would drive us and not understand what it means to be human. And therefore, you know, in my world, my world is, as a Christian, I believe we are made in the image of God. And even God rested, you know, <laughs> after creation, some people say, oh, why did God need a rest? I don't know that he needed a rest. I think he just wanted to pause. I think if we stay busy, we don't really access our divinity, our spiritual selves, the truth about ourselves. And deep down, I think there may be a genuinely understood fear of feeling pain feeling the pain of our humanity and, and therefore, in my view, feeling the pain of some of our divinity, feeling what that must mean. There's a wonderful story. I love my stories. You're probably getting that. There's a wonderful story written by the tremendously gifted author Ursula Le Guin. It's the Earthsea Trilogy. And it's all about a, a wizard uh, called Jed. And it's such a symbolic story. He he kind of wants to be this powerful person. And in the process, he unlocks kind of a doorway and this demon comes after him and he spends the whole of the story running from this demon, being chased all across the world of Earthsea by this demon, this, this malevolent force. And he, <laughs> This is the, like the pain. This is like the suffering and, and the ego and all the things that we maybe do wrong. And he, he just ran and ran and ran from it, <laughs> spoiled. Spoiler alert, by the way, so switch off right now if you don't know this one and you want to read it. But in the end, he turns around and he, he faces it. And guess what he sees? He sees himself. He sees himself. And, and there's a, another little 
sort of archetypal image of this in the Star Wars trilogy where where Luke Skywalker goes into this kind of cave of the unconscious and he fights Darth Vader. And it turns out that, that when he kills Darth Vader, the evil one, you know, and the helmet falls with his head on, Darth Vader's head on, and the visor opens and it's Luke's own face. It's almost as if the thing we fear is meeting ourselves and meeting what it means for us to acknowledge that we ain't perfect because the fascist would have us be perfect. And so meeting in and finding space and time to meet ourselves, to acknowledge the pain we carry and to soothe that, you know, maybe, you know, you could do worse than put on Barbara's adagio for strings. Because if we're going to keep demanding and getting rid of pain, I, I am no advocate of getting rid of pain. Many of my clients get very frustrated with me because I kind of, I want to meet the pain. I kind of rub my head, hands together and think, now we have something. Now we have something to understand. The pain has brought you here. The suffering has brought us to this place now now the work begins. This is because we're worth it, I think. Deep, deep down, I believe we're worth it. If we weren't worth it, we'd never have to learn anything. But you know, we are worth it. In my religious view, we're brought to our knees sometimes because we are so important to God. We are so important. And so, if we get rid of stuff, if we come up with new techniques and new ways, if we're always trying to get rid of stuff, how do we know we're not throwing out the baby with the bathwater? Now, that would be a terrible thing, wouldn't it? I mean, think of that image. <laughs> That's a somewhat negligent parent. You know, you just get his dirty water thrown. Oh, I forgot. There was a baby in there. <laughs> and this idea that we meet and we don't get rid of, we don't fix, but we find acceptance lies at the very center of the work of so many healers. And, you know, right at the beginning of my journey, when I was a, a mere scrap of a lad in my 20s, I had learned massage and I was, I had this great belief that touch could truly transform our world. I still do. It's been the continuing idea of my whole life obsessed, if you like, with this idea. And I was asked to go and teach a, a group of old age pensioners some massage stuff. And uh, it was actually in London. It was in a little place called Brent. Brent had age concern. I don't know. I don't think you have that in New Zealand, but in the UK, we have age concern. And so it used to be a place where oldies, which I think I'm now considered to be one of them. I don't really accept that myself. <laughs> but as a youngster, I went in and there were about um, 12 people, old people turned up for this class. And I brought some massage tables. So I set up these tables and I just showed them. I just said, look, one of you just lie on your back back on the table who's happy to have your feet massaged and first there was this kind of ah, feet. I don't want anyone to see my horrible feet you know as you get older your feet don't get more beautiful I'm afraid <laughs> they get more you know distorted and things happen and they chart the journey of our lives these feet so so yeah feet that's a whole big thing I love feet I love feet to bits um, but so I just demonstrated some really simple touch moves on the feet, you know, a little bit of oil. So it was anointing the feet. And I talked to them a little bit about 
acceptance and understanding the journey that feet had gone. I demonstrated this and I said, just try it out and let's not talk. Let's just tune in to giving the touch or receiving the touch. And it was just amazing because I just stood back and watched these people, these older people giving each other foot massage, very simple foot massage, nothing fancy, just very simple to these amazing feet. And you see, the feet are incredible, let's face it. They tread every mile. I spoke with the psychiatrist, Rene, and he talked about in Africa uh, how palaced the feet were because of how many miles they must walk. In fact, he calculated that one of his patients had such thick calluses, and when he found out that, although she never travelled more than 15 kilometres, so that's you know reasonable distance, isn't it? But she was doing it every day, and he calculated that in her life she'd walked around the planet seven times. <laughs> yeah, that would give you a few calluses, wouldn't it? Eh? But this idea that when you connect with your feet, these feet have carried you through your life, every step of your life. And, and so when, when you're in the privileged position of touching another person's feet, and by the way, do it, whenever you can, just rub and just trust yourself on that. Um, the, the feet that you massage is the life. It was always my daughter's, still is my daughter's favorite thing. You know, when she's relaxed and happy, she sits down next to me on the settee and puts her foot on my lap and looks at me in this demanding way, you know, as if to say, well, get on with it. <laughs> and of course, I love to do that. So why am I talking about feet? Well, I was doing this class with these old people and you could hear a pin drop because all, all there was in the noise in the room was just this sighing <sighs> or just the occasional snore as someone relaxed. <laughs> and it was beautiful. It was like... The room changed and it went from a, you know, rather institutionalized adult education room to a sort of something pink and soft. It was just beautiful. And I think the heart was there. The heart of everyone was touched. And at the end, they were very appreciative and I was equally appreciative of them and sharing that moment with them. And then they all buggered off. And then the woman who ran the adult education center, um, I just heard her scream in the hallway outside the room we were in, and she came into the room. I was putting away the tables afterwards and folding them up and everything, and she just grabbed my hand and walked me out into the hallway and said, look, and all I saw was a hallway, you know. I said, what, what, what are you asking me to look at? She said, look. And they're lined up by the doorway with 12 sticks, 12 walking sticks. <laughs> They'd all forgotten to take their walking sticks with them, <laughs> which just cracked me up. Uh, she seemed to think that something more important had happened, but for me it was just a hoot. Um, and, and I think, you know, it was because they'd accepted and acknowledged and really allowed themselves to listen. So sometimes touch in the body can really help us in our healing, I think. I think that's the point of the story. I think 
that everyone, the givers and the receivers, were kind of listening to the life lived. I'd done a little talk. I don't know how I understood this stuff so early on, but I did have a few insights, even at that young age, that the feet carrying us through. So when you do the standing, that's great. And when you're with someone, massage their feet, always massage their feet and be firm. Don't be don't be damby-pamby and tickle their feet. That's awful. Be firm. You know, there's a lot of tension in the feet. So just good, gentle, but firm touch. Um, so here's another little, I, I promised you I'd give you something. Well, it's a reward, isn't it, for listening to me waffling on. <laughs> So here's the tool. Here's the technique. All right. Um, and if you're driving, please don't try this while you're driving. But <laughs> um, you might even just do this while I'm talking to you, uh, which is just to lie on the floor. Very simple. Lie on the floor on your back. Put a little bit of a rest of a small cushion under your head. Um, and have your knees up. So the feet, the soles of the feet come to more or less where the knees were or a little bit somewhere between where the feet are when the, the legs are straight out. You bring the soles of the feet up on the floor, both knees together, and just have your arms out to the side and just breathe. And by breathing, I mean breathing out. <laughs> just go for the out breath. You know, if you want to know how to breathe, Breathe out and let your body do the rest. Because if you breathe out and let as much air out as you can, what will happen is the diaphragm will travel back towards the spine and up towards your head. Yeah, it won't be up if you're lying on the floor. But but as you expel the last dregs of the air, the diaphragm is then, as it were, brought up. And that means when you breathe in, the diaphragm can much more easily just go down and you can feel that belly like a great big balloon, right? Put your hands on your belly and, and just feel as you breathe in that ballooning of the belly. Uh, I call it the Buddha belly. <laughs> All those lovely images of the great big fat, smiling, laughing Buddha with a great big belly like he's having such a good time. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so you're on your back, your knees are up in the air, well, they're supported by your feet, the feet are on the ground, the knees are up, the knees are together, and your arms then go out to the side, and very, very slowly, very so, so you really feel the contact with the floor. You let your head roll to one side, and your both knees together travel to the other side. You just do it really gently, and then, you know, very slowly, you let them fall all the way down to the floor and the head to go as far as it can. And you just lie there and breathe for a moment. And then you bring it back to the middle position again, where you started from. And then the knees slowly flop over to the other side and the head goes to the opposite direction to the knees. And that's all you have to do. I mean, if you want to, you can take a degree in movement theory and practice and pass an academic university education in it, or you can just do it right now. <laughs> put on, a, you know, try Barber's Adagio, put on something that you know touches you or soothes you. And in all of that time, when you're moving and breathing, feel the pressure of the floor against your back. It's going to change. At every degree of movement change, there's a change of pressure against the floor. And breathe and just allow yourself to meet yourself. Make an appointment with yourself with beautiful music and see if you can hear that still small voice, but you may have to go through a bit of an eruption. You know, you may have to rend the mountain with wind. Um, I'm not suggesting that you pass wind excessively, but you may have to, you may have to shake the earth. You may tremble and shake, you know, and they miss out the, the rains and the storms. You know, there might be a few tears. That's all okay. It's all okay. 
It's just your body releasing. When you meet yourself and you meet your body and it will say, you know, I want to shake. I want to, I want to cry. Um, it's okay. It's okay. You can get up and do all the ordinary things anytime you want, but here's the hard job. Here's the real hard yards. And this is more profound and more challenging than climbing any mountain or achieving any great five-day tramp. Just to spend a few minutes with yourself is the greatest achievement of humanity and the hardest thing to do. I'm sure Edmund Hillary went through a lot to get to the top of Everest, but you know what? Uh, I think it's as hard to do what I just suggested you do. And you meet yourself and you keep breathing, and you acknowledge yourself. You don't try and fix and get rid of. Remember, do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> and the baby is you, your needs, your pain, what you carry. And just breathe and allow yourself to flow with those movements and the music. And at the end of that, just let the legs fall and be still and just breathe. And just allow yourself to meet that still, small voice. And it may ask you, what doest thou here? Thank you for listening. You've been listening to my reflections after a wonderful session with Sandy Murphy from Nadi Wellness in Queenstown. And if you stay tuned, um, we're going to come back and talk to Sandy about her whole life and what music uh, represents her life so she's going to choose seven tracks of music thanks for tuning in to real people with jerry pives do you have a guest suggestion for jerry if you know someone who has an interesting life story maybe that someone is you then please get in touch jerry would love to get your feedback so please send us a text on 2057 or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio to let us know your thoughts about his show. That's your message to 2057 or inbox at realitycheck.radio. Normal texting charges apply. So welcome to the third segment of Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair. I'm talking to Sandy Murphy from Nadi Wellness all the way down in Queenstown. And you're now listening to the section where Sandy is talking about her life through seven tracks of music. So Sandy, tell us about your first piece of music. So Fast Car by Tracy Chapman popped to mind first, actually, because I was in my school days, I would have been high school, and I had a very severe punishment of being suspended from school. And in the process of that suspension, I got to study for my exams, which was an absolute bonus. But I also got to sit on the roof of my house, sunbathe, and listen to endless hours of Tracy Chapman. And I love her song, Fast Car. What, what year would this have been, Sandy? Oh, this would have been back in the 90s. Um, goodness knows, probably mid-90s, I would say, because I started uni at the end of the 90s. Yeah. Yeah, so you got suspended from school. Dare I ask what you did? I did. Oh, it's so <laughs> naughty. I had a few drinks with some friends. We Back in those days, if you concocted a, you know, um, a drink, it was sometimes called rocket fuel, a mixture of hideous spirits, and um, not what teenagers should be doing, but that's what we did back in those days. And I had jumped on a little dinghy on the Wakatipu Lake and then walked to the school dance with a friend of mine. And, um, of course, 
it was pretty obvious once we arrived what we'd been gotten up to, but mm, big trouble. <laughs> Didn't go down oh, well, too well I, with my parents. <laughs> I managed to go one better than you and got myself expelled in my sixth form, so that was pretty good. <laughs> Did you? Oh, my goodness. The best of us got kicked out of school. Well, it says something, doesn't it? The old it spirit of rebellion. Something. Yeah, something, hey. Where did you go to school? Where was this? Was this down here in Queenstown? This was Wakatipu High School in Queenstown. Yeah. yeah. Not everyone will know that in this town, but... I'm sure no one listening ever got caught doing anything bad in their school years. So let's have <laughs> a listen to Tracy Chapman <laughs> singing Fast Car. So that was Tracy Chapman singing Fast Car. I do love that line. I've got a feeling that I belong, uh, that I can be someone. What a fantastic song that is. I've got so many recollections, Sandy, of that song myself. It does conjure up a whole period of time and, and a period in, in history, really. And what a great musician she was, eh? So inspirational. And I just love the timbre of her voice. It's very rich and warm. Beautiful, beautiful voice. Yeah. Yeah, really. Quite a voice. Yeah. So we're going to move on to track number two. So tell us what your second choice of music for us is, Sandy. <laughs> well, I was a big fan of Duran Duran back in the day. Um, this is also harking back into my earlier years. Um, and there was a song that my best friend, Kathy Barr at the time, she's now Kathy Watts, um, we're still friends. We've been friends for 40-something years and we used to sing this Duran Duran song out loud, top of our lungs, on the tea bar over at uh, Coronet Peak Ski Field. And this sort of like symbolises for me Duran Duran, a period of my life where we were just so into music and we'd go on these ski weeks like up Broken River in Christchurch, different ski fields because my family was uh, uh, very avid skiers. And we'd just have the best time. And it just takes me back. You know, one song like this one is just taking me right back into um, into that zone. So, Sandy, how old would you have been what, during this time? What sort of age is this piece of music taking you back to being? Honestly, around the age of how old my daughter is now. So it would have been around 12, 11, 12, that kind of range, pre-teens. Um, and, yeah, leaning into teens. <laughs> So did you have a crush on Simon Le Bon? Yes, because Kathy's was John Taylor and mine was Simon Le Bon. Back in those days where you could get the Dolly magazines, rip out the posters and stick them on the wall. <laughs> you guessed it right. How did you know it was Simon Le Bon? Was. Well, he's the, he's the Duran Duran singer, isn't he? He is, but John Taylor's also in the band and that was Kathy's hunk of the day and mine was well, definitely Simon Le Bon. I think John Taylor was pretty handsome too, actually, wasn't he? They he were was. The, he was more her yeah. type. He was more her type. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the dark and the dark and brooding, eh? <laughs> exactly. That's right. We all have our types. <laughs> we're gonna take back to teenage heartthrob Simon LeBon. <laughs> actually, aside from his heartthrob features, he was also the sound of his voice captures that period so amazingly. There's something about if you talk about the timbre of a voice, his voice is an iconic voice for those that, that age, the new romantics, the kind of the, the whole style of music that emerged at that time. And uh, his voice, every time I hear it, it literally 
transports me back to that period of time as well. So it, it is an iconic voice, and I, I just think that's amazing. So we're going to listen to um, Planet Earth by Duran Duran. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> so you've just been listening to heartthrob Simon Le Bon from Duran Duran singing Planet Earth. Uh, what an iconic thing. We were just discussing, in fact, how interesting that music kind of transports us back, rubber bands us back, particularly to the very young years, you know, up until about the age of 21. I do have music that I remember since. But mm. but there's something amazing, isn't there, about this, how during our youth, how vivid everything is and how the how music seems to just literally rubber band us straight back to that moment before we even hardly thought about it. We just got to hear the track and we're back in the, the feeling of those days. What do you think, Sandy? <laughs> Oh, 100%. Yeah, I think it's like smells music. I, I think they're both real sort of portals to the past, aren't they? And they bring back, as you say, the feeling sense of that time period and, and the memories that are associated with it, which is just fantastic that we've got that music sort of immortalised, really, to, to go back to. Mm. I think that's one of the reasons why, as we get older, we feel really attached to certain musicians and their lives and, and their journeys. And we feel an almost a personal connection with them, don't we? Even though we don't know them. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I mean, just as an aside, I watched Wham! recently on Netflix. And what an incredible um, documentary that was to, to see, you know, George Michael's uh, life, really. And, and just that connection back into to that same 80s, 90s time zone it was awesome. Well, we may have said it in the interview, but how old are you now, can I ask? I am budging up against 50 in June of next year, so 49 at present. <laughs> Coming up to your half century. Not a bad cricket score yes. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just thinking yesterday just how much I do not feel that age. And I'm sure everyone says it when they're feeling well and good and, you know, age keeps continuing on I just it's hard to believe it's hard to fathom 50 what <laughs> yeah yeah there's a whole thing there about aging and how we feel about it um I'm not going to start mm. on that topic but that's a big subject isn't it <laughs> let's not um, go there <laughs> great so we've had Duran Duran and what's your next piece that is a um, music with meaning for you there is a song by Pink Floyd and I absolutely love Pink Floyd big fan um called Wish You Were Here uh, and it really is, I suppose, the piece that stands out for me um, about this time period in my life where I was getting into acting and I was doing lead roles in school productions and also at that time joined the school band. And though I'm not a musician per se, I did learn the piano, but I've never learned the guitar and so forth. I did enjoy working with my voice. And we sang Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here in Rock Quest, which actually got into the, I think it was the semi-finals at Sammy's Nightclub in Dunedin. And I was up there on the big stage, not singing just Wish You Were Here. We also sang an REM song and an original. Um, but Wish You Were Here was a song I got to belt out on the stage. And because I'm not per se a singer, it's very memorable to me, um, the joy I had in singing that amazing, beautiful song. Yeah. Wow. Such a creative thing. I do often think that you know there's been so much emphasis in education on functional subjects, and I think and practical subjects as well here in New Zealand. But I, I think about 
the confidence that you get as a youngster from you know just belting out a song and singing out there and learning learning how to project yourself your persona your voice it's like such a life skill if you want to do anything that involves public speaking or running mm-hmm. courses i know you do teaching and you do teaching's a big part of your life now and i just know that we underestimate i think the value of the arts, the dance, the music, the memorizing poems and reciting them. Um, these are the most important skills in life that I can think of. Yeah, they're igniters for our creativity. And I agree with you. I think they're incredibly underrated. I mean, there is the arts celebrated, of course, but I do think, you know, getting into spaces where we can build our confidence and come from a place of being seen. um, I think it's a very, you know, awkward thing to be seen. It's very vulnerable. Um, And to gain those skills in earlier childhood, I think is key. Um, You know, getting up, having the confidence to be seen, be heard um, and give it a crack. And, you know, who cares if you make a little fluff or you, you fail a little or it doesn't come out exactly right or something doesn't hit the note, um, at least you've given it a shot. And I think it sets up your fabric, as you say, for um, for more confidence. And that's important. And these days, we really need to see our young ones doing that more, you know, so much internet sucking that um, it sort of distracts people from the embodied experience of being, say, on stage or in front of people. Yeah. Yeah, that's such an interesting angle on it as well, because, you know, you're not going to learn anything from looking at a screen. You're not going to do anything looking at a screen. And it's about the doing and the exposure and the growing. My goodness. Yeah, it's also about the discomfort, being out of the comfort zone. I surely wasn't in a comfort zone by getting up and singing in front of the school assembly or Rock Quest or so. I was nervous as anything. But there was just something about being able to transmute the nerves into excitement and do something with them that it's a big leap that happens, I feel. Mm. So we're going to listen to the song Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. Mm, Thank you. So you were listening to Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd, and I'm talking to Sandy Murphy from Nadi Wellness in Queenstown. Sandy, what an amazing track that is. I have so many associations, and the whole album Wish You Were Here is such a moving album, isn't it? And the way in which it was dedicated to the early band member, Sid Barrett, who suffered from basically a a terrible mental illness. And Mm. the band was, talk about trauma, the band was so traumatized by this. And I don't know whether you know this, but while they were recording it, and this is like 10 years since they've seen Sid, and he's been in psychiatric wards, he's living a quiet oh. life, and they, they haven't seen him for 10 years. You know, he, he doesn't want to see any of them. He's in he's struggling. And whilst they were recording this song, um, this man shuffled in in a raincoat. No one knows how he got in. And he started, he just came and walked into the studio, and it slowly dawned on the band that this was Sid. They could barely recognize him. He had a shaved head. His face was puffy. He looked awful. And it's just a heartbreaking album. I mean, it it is so poignant. I think it is probably, one for me, it's one of their most poignant albums. It kind of breaks my heart every time I hear the the Shine On You Crazy Diamond, you know, that came in that 
Aim album. Oh, what a piece! Um, and it's uh, the I'm lyricism. Sure. It's the lyricism and the beautiful uh, poetry and language that I absolutely resonate with. That it's it, it has inspired me. Um, Pink Floyd, uh, the way that they capture such a unique feeling through the words. Yeah, I mean, we're just two lost souls swimming in a fishbowl. It's just so poignant, as you say. Amazing. Yeah. 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 So, Sandy, tell us what your fourth track of music is for us. I've chosen Under the Watchtower by Dave Matthews Band um, because it represents a time of my life when I was living in Canada, in Vancouver, actually. And I went to film school in Canada, did a diploma in acting for television and film. And I have a very, very dear friend who lives in Vancouver, and she was a very big fan of Dave Matthews Band. She said, Sandy, you got to hear these guys. And as soon as I linked into them, I just, oh, what a voice and what an incredible, like, orchestral grunt uh, Dave Matthews Band has. And this particular song to me is just the epitome of how so many instruments and so many talents can be weaved together to create just just gold. It's it's such a beautiful piece. Um, love it. Love this song. And I hope you enjoy it. It's it's live, actually, this one. It's a, it's a live rendition that's got that power of live, you know. Wonderful. And this rubber bands you straight back to Vancouver you say yeah Vancouver lived there for two years um did my training and acting there and yeah explored the countryside as you do when you're you know in different places up to Whistler skiing and over to Banff and incredible country Canada very like New Zealand um really enjoyed my time there it was it was a challenging time sometimes but it was also an amazing um memorable place with great dear friends of mine that I I hold dear to this day yeah and you were you were doing singing and acting and film my goodness what a creative young young person you were <laughs> not and, so and still much are. singing I I think the singing wasn't my forte but drama was um and I tended to always be cast in roles where you know, the underdog roles. And they are the roles that I absolutely adore to play. Um, not the princess characters, but the the darker side characters and the ones that have got some, some, you know, some demons on board or some stuff to chew through. And I just found those characters to play really, really interesting. Um, and so it just sort of, this song marks that period of my life where I really started getting into um, the journey of being an actress and and what it meant to understand or, or walk in the shoes of, of other beings and, and start to understand my emotional landscape more and how I could um, make a difference through storytelling, really. Yeah. Enjoyed wow. that. so. Wow. So what kind of years are we talking now? Where have we got to? What kind of, uh, what are we talking, mid-1990s, late-1990s? This will be uh, post-university because I did my degree in Bang in Wellington in New Zealand at Vic, um, and then I went to Canada. So graduated from Vic in about 95. So we're talking late-90s. Yeah, I'd say it'd be like a few years after, a couple of years after I've, I graduated from um, uni, I went and, and I just thought, oh, I'm going to, cross the seas and see how it goes jump into this container of in completely you know different culture and all the rest that goes with it I think I got a bit of a hybrid accent when I was there <laughs> when I look at young actors who do really well I mean I could name loads of them but 
they seem to have such an incredible depth of understanding. It blows my mind sometimes that a young yeah. a young man or a young woman can, as it were, inhabit the complexity of some of the psychological makeups that make human beings. And again, we're back to the subject really of the role of the arts in in really helping people understand themselves and the world and make sense of themselves. Yeah, I think exactly that, uh, making sense of who we really, really are. And I mean, that was one of the questions as a young actress that was the main question to keep asking, who am I, who am I? And it's sometimes perceived that if you're an actor, then you're pretending or you're fake, that the roles you're playing, you know, you're not being yourself. That's some stigma that goes with acting, but it's quite the reverse. In order to drape, the characterization of somebody else around you, you need to be very in touch with your truth. So that's the journey. Who am I? Who am I really? And then how can I bring the circumstances of this character and animate it with my truth so that there's there's a beautiful um, authenticity to the way in which, it, in which it's shared? And as you say, you know, what a wonderful exploration for understanding yourself better um, to go into the arts and and to explore such things, yeah. We're going to listen to Under the Watchtower by the Dave Matthews Band, and Dave Matthews, obviously. And this is a period in Sandy's life in Vancouver, at the film school, acting, all the excitement of a young life evolving. I can almost feel it vibrating as we talk <laughs> about it here, the, all the excitement of youth and becoming a young adult and all of that. I bet, I bet listeners are now thinking about that kind of age. So you'd be about 21, 22, yes. 23, that kind of age. Yeah, I wonder what the listeners are making of that time of their lives as well. Mm. So Under the Watchtower by Dave Matthews Band. So you've just been listening to Under the Watchtower by the Dave Matthews Band. So Sandy Murphy, what is your fifth track that you have for us today? Fifth track is one of my all-time favourites by Sting, Desert Rose. And this song epitomises a time of my life when I was living in London, uh, year 2000, 2001. And I used to listen to this track, I don't know how many times, with my headphones on, walking down the Thames, back to uh, where my first home was, which was on a barge in the Battersea area. So I lived on a boat and my bedroom was under the stairs. So I was actually literally sleeping under the water level line of the Thames um, and walking along that Thames River with, you know, sting blasting every cell of my brain. It was just the best song. Love it. Love it. And it reminds me of a time when I was yeah, really starting to brave with my foundation from Vancouver with my acting training um, to brave pub theatres around the central London area and to put together a play that I'd always wanted to do called Verbatim and it's a New Zealand uh, gritty piece of theatre that was written by Miranda Harcourt and William Brandt and I decided I would take that to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and so while I was learning lines I was listening to Sting and then I was walking along the Thames and this just takes me straight back into that uh, that frame of my life in my 20s would be mid 20s, somewhere around there, and um, living the dream or trying to, <laughs> doing my best to live the dream. Well, you know, we might even have passed each other on the sidewalk back then because we might have. 
I oh. was often visiting that area of London. I was running my own training courses down in London at that time. So who knows? You might have walked past me listening to Sting, and I might have just been, you know, thinking about whatever I was thinking about. And, and you know, here we are now. But yes, we may exactly. well have collided. <laughs> or Camden Market when I was picking up my red leather jacket and still wear it to this day. You know, these amazing moments in our life where yeah, who knows? Maybe we did pass each other on the tubes <laughs> or the street. Yeah. Yeah. So you weren't just messing around in, well, I say messing around in the pub theatres. You were off to the Edinburgh Fringe. That's, uh, is that right? And you did your play in the Edinburgh Fringe? I did. Uh, Candlemaker Row in Edinburgh, um, a one-woman show, 60 minutes on stage by myself, uh, six characters plunged into the aftermath of a homicide. So not the most, you know, uh, not M rated. It was definitely about domestic violence and all sorts of other things. And, you know, it, once again, that gritty underdog character type that I would play. Um, it's such a beautiful piece of theatre verbatim. Yeah. And who is the author of that? Uh, so, William Brandt and Miranda Harcourt wrote Wonderful. it. And Miranda, she's an actress as well, um, as many of you listeners would know in New Zealand and um, led the Toifakari Drama School in Wellington for many, many years. I think she might even still be there. I'm a little bit out of touch. Um, but she performed that particular play around all the prisons in New Zealand. And I was extremely inspired by that particular piece of theatre, watching the documentary that was made around her performing it. And I, you know, metaphorically took that piece of theatre and folded it up and put it in my back pocket and thought, one day when I feel the confidence and I feel ready, I'm going to give that play a crack. And so I applied for the rights to them and they gave me the rights to perform it at the Edinburgh Fringe and around London, which was super exciting and extremely terrifying at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So you were waving the Kiwi flag, eh, with, yeah. with this play. How wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, and I had, I had a couple of time slots that clashed with other stand-up comedians, so it was sometimes um, a challenging scenario indeed to get um, your audience in and sometimes I'd have a full house and on on another time slot during the week I might have three people in the room and there was one particular night I performed one-on-one -on -one, and that was one of the most special theatre experiences I've ever had. Uh, the, the gentleman stood up at the end and clapped his singular oh, and I just gave it my all as well 100%. Um, so fascinating ex explorations in theatre for sure um, in London. Yeah. Well, you've got no right in performance uh, if you cannot give your heart and soul to an audience of one just as much as you give to an audience of several hundred. You've got no right to stand on the stage unless you've done the hard miles and trodden the boards, as they say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And such an experience to do both and to experience both. Yeah, you earn your spurs in this life. Um, listen, <laughs> the Edinburgh Fringe. I mean, I've been up to Edinburgh and during the Fringe, and it's quite a time, isn't it? Quite an atmosphere. Oh, absolutely fantastic atmosphere. Some of the talent there is just extraordinary. It's a great pooling together of just so many artists with so many different angles on their play, you know, whether it be comedy or um, visual art and even the marketing around it. I remember sitting on the street inside a cage to market my show you know you go the hard yards like I made a, a, a wire cage and I just sat there on a chair 
as a prisoner and people would walk past and some people were super spooked by the look you gave them, but they'd pick up a flyer. <laughs> so, yeah, any, anything goes at the Edinburgh Fringe for sure. So are you sure that wouldn't have put people off it? Are you sure? Well, <laughs> <laughs> possibly. Uh, yeah, there was enough intrigue, I think. Yeah, there was enough intrigue around it, but... I remember the one year I was wandering around in Edinburgh during the time of the Fringe, just all the antics that the performers would get up to, trying to grab people into their yeah. tiny theatres in some remote little location. It's just, But the city would come alive. I mean, every bar and every restaurant was just humming. Oh, yes. with, with, with just oh, The atmosphere yeah. was incredible. Yeah. Oh, absolutely loved it. And and just enjoyed even the downtime in and around that where I could go for a run around the castle. I mean, how many times in your life do you get to run around a castle as your morning run? It was pretty awesome. Amazing space. Very gothic city, um, full of history and um, richness to inspire. Mm. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful place. So we're now going to have a listen to the piece that rubber band Sandy back to the Edinburgh Fringe, London, performing in theatres. <laughs> and this piece is Desert Rose by Sting. So you've just been listening to the iconic track Desert Rose by Sting. And Sandy Murphy, I'm wondering what your sixth track of music is going to be for us and, and why it's so significant for you. So my sixth track that I've chosen is Michael Franti's song, The Sound of Sunshine. And the reason it's significant to me is it takes me directly into one of my second home hub places in this world, which is Bali. Um, I've had the great fortune of being able to go to Bali several times now, probably minimum seven times I've been to and from New Zealand to Bali, um, mostly to run my yoga retreats um, with my colleague Amanda. And it's just, so the place we hold the retreats is called Soul Shine. And the owner of Soul Shine is Michael Franti. And I don't know how it was that I came across a retreat center that's as beautiful as Soulshine is, and then to recognize that that was Michael Franti's retreat space because I was a big fan of his music, went to his concerts in Sydney. I once hugged him actually after a concert and realized how incredibly enormous he is. I think he might be nine foot something. I was hugging him around the waist and thought, goodness me, I don't think I've ever hugged a man so huge. He was absolutely enormous in terms of height. And he's just the most amazing musician, the most amazing human, um, all about staying human and providing a location with his great fortune to provide a space where people can go and relax and heal and be happy and enjoy. And so this song epitomizes for me an uplifted energy, a sense of joy, um, everything that Bali provides for me, a spirited sense of self. Um, it's a song I love to dance to and in the sunshine. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, there's nothing more to be said about that one. I think you've, you've <laughs> <Neither>. evoked, <laughs> you've, you've absolutely evoked uh, an atmosphere and a place and, and a time. Just uh, what sort of age are you now? What sort of period of your life is this causing you to kind of, does it connect you with? So this has bed me right forward to recent days. This is kind of contemporary times. The last, I would say the last 10 years, um, maybe the last seven years. Um, I've been going to Bali since my daughter was quite young. She first came with me actually as a toddler. She was two and um, I had a Balinese nanny help 
take care of her while I was teaching and we just carried on with life and she absolutely loves Bali as well and all the monkeys and the monkey forest and so forth so it's just yeah it's taken me back to I guess the time in which I've been around my kids um, and still been able to have this incredible opportunity to go and travel and work with my travel yeah Oh, it sounds a dream, Sandy. It sounds an absolute dream. So we're going to listen to Michael Franti's The Sound of Sunshine. Well, you've just been listening to Michael Franti's The Sound of Sunshine. And I wonder if you could just hear the water lapping and the <laughs> sounds of the monkeys in Bali and Sandy <laughs> with her two-year-old daughter doing yoga retreat. Some people, they just have the toughest of lives, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> so, Sandy, we're now onto our last piece of music. And what are you going to, um, what piece are you going to have us play for your last piece? So, quite a diversely different piece. This is a piece by David Lurie, and it's called May I Remember. And it's beautifully written. The words in this song gather up for me a lot of the essence of what I love to impart from the yoga tradition. Um, it's the it's a little bit like a blessing, this song, uh, in a way. It feels like a song that has us remember who we are and what we're here for and what we're all about. And it's just so beautifully written. I, I love the the message of this song. And I hope that the listeners do too. Yeah or at least that it sparked something in their, um, in their awareness, yeah. Beautiful. And I know that for you, yoga is a lot more than just a sort of physical discipline. It's much more mm. even than just a, an emotional or mental discipline. You, you're entering us into the world of the spiritual elements of yoga, I believe. Yeah, I do believe that the yoga journey, you know, we think it's just doing postures. The West has very much put yoga on the page with downward facing dog and every other pose that you can do and Instagram and everything. But um, but really, that's just one limb of a multi-limbed path of what yoga is. Yoga means union. And I've been teaching now, I can't believe it, but for 17 years. And what I have experienced in terms of my own personal transformation through the tools and the technologies that yoga provides and then what I have been able to share with others as a messenger of that um, incredible vast knowledge um, is just absolutely I don't have, even have words for it just how powerful it is so yeah the path of yoga is very close to my heart it is my vocation now really my main vocation and um, and being a teacher trainer at this point I, I just feel so privileged to be able to hold the space for people to get to know who they really, 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 really are um, under the veil of all these conditioned paradigms that we either build up upon ourselves or have been inheriting from from society, from parents, from, you know, times long past, really. And it's just time to to really awaken and and be who we really, really are and the vulnerability that goes with that and the authenticity that supports so many others when we do. Hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. I mean, I uh, looked on your website and I've seen some amazing film of you uh, doing your yoga high up in the mountains above Queenstown. <laughs> and 
And it's like, yeah, you wouldn't be in any doubt that the way Sandy regards yoga has a profoundly spiritual element to it. And it looks just amazing, um, the work that you do. And I'd recommend anyone go and take a look at Sandy's website, which is Nadi Wellness. I think it's Nadi Wellness. Can you give me the address of it if people want to yeah, chase Yeah, Nadi nadiwellness.co.nz and the specific photos and videos that you're referring to are actually my online um, offering which is called Dimensional Being and it's a 10 class yoga series that I shot uh, last year in the big outdoors of Queenstown with the local film company Storyworks who are just epic to work with and we created 75 minute classes in the big outdoors in various amazing magical locations around Queenstown so that people who can't necessarily come along to one of my public classes can enjoy it from wherever they are in the world. Um, and so that's what you were seeing there with those epic uh, photos. Um, and you can just go to the website and you can download it and um, get to know me as a teacher, even if you can't come to my physical classes throughout New Zealand. So yeah, www.nadiwellness.co.nz is where you'll find that. I mean, not a bad backdrop, eh? The the mountains <laughs> Queenstown. around Queenstown. <laughs> I think they're top notch worldwide. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to finish this amazing session that we've had, Sandy, with David Lurie's "May I Remember." And I just want to say thank you for your generosity of time and spirit in sharing mm. with us your life and the, the music that touches you and takes you back to important and significant moments. So Sandy Murphy, thank you for being in the psychotherapist chair. Thank you for the opportunity. I feel very grateful and how fun it has been to explore and dive into my own heritage and life and, um, and to, to explore what has really moved me. It's been an incredible process. Really lovely. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Real People with Jerry Pives. Do you have a guest suggestion for Jerry? If you know someone who has an interesting life story, maybe that someone is you, then please get in touch. Jerry would love to get your feedback, so please send us a text on 2057 or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio to let us know your thoughts about his show. That's your message to 2057 or inbox at realitycheck.radio. Normal texting charges apply. So now... I'm going to end this week's show with the mailbag. Well, today I received a very special message. It was such a loud message that I'm actually going to read all of the other lovely messages that were sent in for this week, next week. You see, this message today was sent to every single one of us, actually. It was a message sent by that brave whistleblower known as Winston Smith. Yes, him. He has made available the real data of deaths and injuries from the vaccines. Data that our government has been withholding. And what does the government do? Well, they're furious. You see, Winston Smith a.k.a. Winston Smith, you have revealed the corruption and breach of contract, the breach of social contract and any legal contract that our politicians and health workers have been sneakily undertaking. Yes, 
you caught them with their hands in the till. Of course, they're furious. What you shared proves beyond any doubt that we are being lied to. Not only that, but the rest of the world has seen it. So Winston Smith, if you are listening to this, and while we still live in a democracy and we still have freedom of speech, I say this to you directly. Thank you, brother. If you are listening, know that you are doing a beautiful thing. Thousands, if not millions of people around the world are rooting for you. And many of us are praying for your safe release. I invite you to just feel the strength that is heading your way. And I acknowledge you because you are the perfect example of this week's reflections about saying no and standing up for your beliefs. You have not sat at your desk as a keyboard warrior from the safety of your own home. No, you stand as a man in strength. I believe New Zealand men all over will rise and stand with you. And if you have faith, may the Holy Spirit fill your whole being with strength and protection and bring you to safe release. I want you to know that Christian groups all over New Zealand are praying for you and that you are never alone. Stay strong, brother. We are with you. So that is the message to which I wish to respond on this Tuesday afternoon's edition of Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair by honouring and applauding my brother Winston in jail, standing up for the psychological health of all of us by simply sharing the truth. May all those health workers who are trying so hard to hide this information take you as an inspiration to do the right thing and join with you and stand up and speak the truth about what is really happening in New Zealand. And Winston, if you wanted any confirmation of your importance, then just look at the persecution you are suffering. They are deeply worried and scared. Your persecution is the mark of a hero. Wear it proudly. Generations will hold you in honour for what you are doing. And the whole world is now doing what the New Zealand media has not the spine to do. They are reporting and seeking the truth because of what you have done. The fact that the New Zealand media are not doing this tells you all the truth you need to know about who is paying for their souls and who has sold their soul. And as for the politicians, yes, you the politicians, who stand by and let this happen without even a whimper from your spineless bodies, we will remember what you did not do. We will not forget. So this is me, Jerry Pives, 
signing off this week from Reality Check Radio, currently the only station where you will find the real truth being spoken. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair with Jerry Pives. Tuesdays from 1pm on RCR, Reality Check Radio.